insha'Allah, the interpretation or commentary on the 30th section of the, of the Qur'an, 30th part of the Qur'an. With the completion of Al-Asr, the central themes from that juz in the Qur'an have already been introduced and positioned. And from this point onwards, we systematically go through surah after surah. Not in order, but in, in, in an order that I choose in order to, to facilitate the process of understanding. And inshallah, hopefully, then we'll finish the 30th juz of the Qur'an. It is always useful that when we cover a juz, uh, cover a surah, that you try to commit it to memory. Although I personally do not subscribe to the schools of thought which make memorization the end all, I believe the illa of or the operative cause behind the invocations for memorization were basically the unreliability of recorded methods for the preservations, preservation of the Quran. I don't think that this is the case anymore today. And that the illa has consequently become not so much an imperative, because we can now record in the Quran, to record the Quran in print and in tapes and so on, in, in a multitude of ways. Nonetheless, committing the surah to memory in congruence with the meanings and the tafsir of the surah will allow the, the meanings to seep into your soul, into your psychology, into your mind, and to incrementally, if you truly absorb what you are learning, to incrementally change it. Quite often, one learns the surah with the tafsir, but it never goes beyond the intellect. In other words, they understood as intellectual points, but they are not given the right to intrude upon one's private spirituality. Because you see, your soul is a very private thing. You might accept accepting intrusions upon your intellect or intrusions upon your body is easier than accepting an intrusion upon your soul. Opening up for the, the discourses on the meaning of Allah's speech and allowing it into the most private of private parts inside of you is a challenging proposition. And it's challenging because it requires you to trust it. And trusting something that does not lend itself to easy-made, prefabricated dogma and solutions is not an easy thing. Because you're trusting, you're, you're, you're learning to trust and invite into your most private domain something that you fear can mess up your home. This is like inviting a rowdy bunch of guests who if you learn to appreciate, you can actually learn quite a bit from, but who invariably will change the very character of your household. The, most, the majority of people when reading or when 
studying tafsir never go beyond the intellect. And none of the meanings and none of the power, which we'll talk about now in, in the second one we get into our next surah, the metaphysical power of the word penetrates beyond the physical entities of their physiology. And we're going to talk about these, these sort of, you want to call them mysterious powers, mystic powers, uh, metaphysical powers, the powers of the alam al-ghayb as, as opposed to the powers of alam shahada. Alam shahada, the seen world, alam al-ghayb, the unseen. In other words, the Quran could be irrational discourse to the rational brain. And in sense, in that sense, it's as we do, we've done in the Qalaqa so far, we discuss several points and we say, well, there's this view, there's this, there's those points, there's this argument and so on. But rationality depends, relies on its survival on the scene, the, the alam al-shahada, the world of the scene, the world of the physical, the world of the logical, the world of the material. Rationality is about material causality. In other words, that when I see Rationality says that when I look at this, I tell myself it's a notebook, and I can recognize papers, and I know if I flip my notebook, that papers will flip by. That's rationality. Now imagine if I look at this, and you tell me I'm holding a cup of water, while I'm suspecting that I'm really holding a dish, while someone else says, no, you're really holding the book. Here, rationality stops the screeching hole comes to a screeching halt. Rationality cannot function beyond the world of alam shahada, the world of, of the seen, the physical. It's not demeaning rationality. In fact, it's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite to go beyond. But in order to skip from the world of the material, the world of the seen, to the world of al-ghayb, the world of the unseen, you need much more than your intellect. So, in fact, most, while most Muslims begin without their intellect, and that's why they never get anywhere. No, the beginning is the intellect. The intellect is like very much like the car that's going to get you there. But once you get there, what you do is something different. The intellect is the prerequisite for anything beyond. But then your heart steps in. Your heart that is able to make connections that the rational world can neither understand nor connect it. And that's why Allah always talks about believing in al-ghayb and al-shahada. And that's why it's always talking about tafakkur, reflection, thought, but ultimately it talks about iman, belief. Tafakkur leads to belief. Rationality leads to ultra rationality. Rationality, the, the, the physical leads to the metaphysical. If you, if you think about it, look at the structure of the Quran. It tells you, look at the ayat of Allah. What's the ayat? The evidence, the proofs of God and so on. The ayat of Allah, which is what? Which is basically physical. The sky, the, the mountains, the ground, the cattle, the humans, etc., etc. It's basically physical. But where does it take you? To the metaphysical. Because ultimately then you start believing in angels and hereafters and, and Allah and etc etc and hell all of it metaphysical this should have told you 
or should tell people from the very beginning that you begin with rationality. You learn how to think, only to learn how to not think. But you can't go the other way. You can't start out not thinking and say, well, you know, ultimately the goal is, is, to, is to go beyond my power of reasoning. So I won't think in the first place. In fact, you'll never get anywhere this way. You always go in circles. At any case. Then, because this halakha is limited to instructional, but it is not directional. In other words, it is not a holistic halakha in which you receive instructions and you receive training in order to make the transition from the intellectual to the metaphysical. Then it is up to you to do it on your own. In other contexts, after learning how to think, after learning how to use your brain and analyze issues, you start using this brain as a scope upon yourself by which you dissect and deconstruct yourself. And after having dissected yourself and understood what it is in the most gruesome and brutal fashion, only then can you start understanding the true nature of other things. So all of this knowledge is then used as a scope upon yourself, not others, but upon yourself in which you completely understand what you are through self-criticism. And yes, the emphasis would have been on self-criticism. And then by doing that, by learning who you are and what your true position is, which if truly understood, you learn that you are basically in the lowest of low position, then you understand the true nature of all physical things. Then only then can you in a healthy fashion, because you see, if you start by focusing on other things, you never understand the true nature of yourself, and then yourself by its by definition becomes arrogant and higher. So let's say I begin out by, de- de- by focusing on this chair here, and I deconstruct the chair, but I am left intact, untouched. What am I going to feel towards this poor deconstructed chair? I'm going to feel superior and higher and mightier than the chair. If I, if I start out by by focusing on person A and deconstructing person A while I remain intact. What is my relationship vis-a-vis that person A? It's going to be a relationship of superiority. I'm going to feel much better than that person because I am intact and this person is deconstructed, is dissected, is analyzed through the sharp powers of the internet. So what we do then is we actually direct it against ourselves first. And once we are thoroughly deconstructed, then you can understand other things because vis-a-vis them, you are not going to feel higher or mightier or, or, or more arrogant. Do you see what I'm saying? You're, you're so deconstructed that in a way you don't exist anymore. And now you are also understanding they don't exist either. And then once you understand the true nature of things, you make exercises. In a, in a proper form of halakha, you do exercises that make you transcend the physical. Transcend the physical, i.e. disrespect and disregard the physical, or the rational. Uh, and here, you could, some of the exercises, for example, is where you, for example, could add 11 plus 11, only to come up with six different possibilities as to what 11 plus 11 could be. And you would be required 
to go and disappear in a room until you can figure out six different possibilities of what 11 plus 11 could be. Why it is now basically learning to look beyond the physical. You de deconstruct the physical existence in itself. And through that training, then you make the, the transition to the metaphysical where you understand not simply through the power of reasoning, but through the transparency and the sensitivity and the purity of heart. The, 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 the original and pristine knowledge that Allah puts in all of us as Allah's preach. Nonetheless, this is not for maybe perhaps one day, to maybe, in a, maybe in a big way, <laughs> this would become this type of halakha, but for now, it is, you should be warned that since we finished Abdul Asr, that you must first refine your intellectual abilities and your powers of tafakkur and tazakkur and ta'akkur, reflection and reasoning, and then direct it against yourself, direct it in a way that you can understand your weaknesses and faults and what is fundamentally wrong with you. I'm not saying you go around calling yourself names, because it's something between you and God. And the more you demean yourself in front of others, then the more you're actually not doing it for the purpose of God. In other words, it is something that you do in your own the privacy of your own home. Do not direct it towards others. Understand your own ignorance, your own foolishness, not the ignorance and the foolishness of others. And ultimately, the object, the purpose, must be to transcend the physical to the metaphysical, to alam al-ghayb, the alam of the unseen. Because you, unless you become schizophrenic or psychotic or delusional, will never see Allah. And so Allah will never step into the realm of the shahada for you on this earth. This is an article of faith. And consequently, the only way you are going to able be you're going to be able to interact with Allah is through which world? The unseen. So how is that going to happen if you never learn to speak the language of the unseen? And not through the when, when people around the world say, Oh, there is no place for Akras, you know, the, the, the sort of what you see around you in the Muslim world, that, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. As we said. Aql is a prerequisite for Iman. Without Aql and Tafakkur and Ta'akkur and Tafakkur, there cannot be Iman. Having said that, now we're going to start going in a systematic fashion until we finish this just So tonight we start with the Mu'awwizatan and we start first with Qul A'udhu Rabbil Falaq, which we do tonight. And then, inshallah, put Auzubu Rabbin Nas would be the final khalaq. This is not the last surah, the one right before the last. Qul Auzubu Rabbin Falaq, min sharri ma khalaq, wa min sharri ghasiq in idha waqab, wa min sharri nafathati fil uqab, wa min sharri hasidin idha hasad. Again, which is not unusual, there is some disagreement as to whether the surah is Makki or Medini. Hasan, وَعِكْرِمَةً وَعَطَاءً وَجَابِرٌ حَسَنٌ وَعِكْرِمَةً وَعَطَاءً وَجَابِرٌ All four said that it is Makkiyah. It was revealed in Mecca. Ibn Abbas, the famous companion, وَقُفَادَ said no, it was Medinian. This surah and the one that follows it, قُلْعَوْزُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ are known as المُعَوِّزَتَانِ the two protectors. And they are also known as al-muqashqishatan, but that's less common. 
that was, that's a bit more medieval. Al-Muqashqishatan meaning the two distinguishers. Because it is said that these surahs are the ones that distinguish or separate the hypocrite from the non-hypocrite. In culture, we often read these two surahs as a form of protection and seeking refuge in Allah. And then we will also will not, will talk about the, the, the many issues that arise from these two surahs. But first, we call out the Falak, Surah Al-Falak. Ibn Mas'ud, the companion, has claimed that these two surahs, Qul A'udhu Rabbil Falaq, Qul A'udhu Rabbil Nas, Al-Mu'awwizatan, are not a part of the Qur'an, and that they were really dua done by the Prophet in seeking refuge from Allah against various things we will talk about. However, Ibn Mas'ud is the only one who has made this claim, or at least is reported to have made this claim, while the family of the Prophet, or members of the family of the Prophet and the other companions seem to have said exactly the opposite. The surah starts with the, with the rather common format that we consistently encounter in the Quran of Qul, say, Qul a'udhu bi Say, A'ud, A'ud means, comes from Awada, means to seek refuge or assistance or help. So, A'udu, I seek help. Birabbi, Rabb, again, has the meaning of what? Caretaker. Implying the same thing we encountered before, an interactive caretaking relationship. Same thing we, we, we encountered in the Fatha. That here, when you are asking, when Allah tells you say, and you say, I seek refuge in, not in Allah the objective, but Allah the caretaker, the interactive, the one who engages in a dynamic caretaking relationship with me, where I speak and Allah gives. So this is very, this raises the whole issue in the, in the Quran, when, when Allah says, Allah would not have cared about you if it hasn't been for your du'a. In other words, if you don't ask, you don't have the time or the energy to ask Allah, you don't deserve Allah's attention. And here, again, the interactive dynamic relationship of the caretaker is brought to bear. Now, in your books, it translates it as daybreak or, or dawn. Al-Falaq means a wide gap. When you say, I, in, in Egyptian, when you say, I am truly fed up, you, you, the literal expression is, in falaq, or in falaq. In falaq means, I have become split into two gaps between my hands. It's sort of idea that you get so upset that you just burst in half and there now gaps between your two halves or a big gap between your two halves. Or something that, that, that breaks your skin is called falaqa. This is like if you take a stick and you hit someone with it. This stick is called falaqa because it breaks the skin into a gap. So al-falaq ma'na al-shukr wasa. Al-shukr wasa, a wide gap. 
That is why the morning was called al-falaq. Daybreak was called al-falaq because of the gap that is created between it and the state of darkness. But Muslim commentators could not under could not agree on the Quranic usage of al-falaq. Because is it being used in its common sense? And if it's its common sense, what common sense? What is its common sense? Or is it being used in a more particular fashion? Ibn Abbas, the companion, who said that this is a Medinian surah, report, it's reported from him that he said al-falaq is a prison in hell where many people will be held. And he said, I seek refuge from the, the caretaker of al-falaq of this prison. Others, the God, sort of, so to speak, the God of that prison in, in, in hell. Abu Abdul Rahman, one of the companions, said, Al-Falaq is simply one of the names for Jahannam, for Hellfire. One of the scholars said, no, Al-Falaq, what is meant here is creation generally. Because in, in the process of creation, there is a gap that is created between the creator and the created. So it's really the, the whole creation that has been that has emerged from the creator. And then this wide gap that then falls between them. Another opinion that I've read is that al-falaq means rocks and mountains that have been because that have been split asunder by water running through them. And then if you notice how what water does in mountains, it creates wide gaps between rocks. Al-Hasan, the grandson of the Prophet, son of Ali, argued that al-falaq doesn't mean a, a prison in hell, nor does it, one of the names of hell, nor does it really mean the creation in a general sense, but it connotes everything that has been set in motion through the process of creation. In his expression, كُلُّ مَنْ فَلَقْ عَنْ جَمِيعِ مَا خَلَقْ In other words, falaq means the gap that is created by this process of ejection or a process of forceful immersion from one thing from another. So when the morning comes out of, of darkness, we call it the falaq. Why? It's as if the morning just comes out ejected from the darkness. And there's a huge gap that then is formed between the morning and night. And Al-Hasan argued that if you look at creation, you will find everything is in this constant process of combustion and being emitted one thing from the other so that a child from the mother, an animal from its, from the dust, a plant from the dust, a plant back again into the dust, constantly a process of emission, combustion, creation, and the gap, everything sort of being formed and leaves the origin from which it came behind it. Even seeds, as they emerge, the, you know, I mean, if you think of the life of a plant, I mean, you see it, let's say a plant ejects out, it emits itself from a seed, only then for a fruit 
eject out of a plant. Only then for a, for a seed to be ejected out of that fruit and in a circular fashion onwards. So that the idea is, is the one who has set in motion this constant combusting process of emission and creation, affirming the clear principle that every created leaves behind what it came from with a gap forming. But if you notice, everything goes around in the circularity except Allah. Except us and Allah. I mean, in the same way that you have a plant emitted from a seed, right? But then ultimately that plant really ends up being a seed that emits a plant. But this circular process doesn't exist with Allah. I mean, we don't end up being God and then God being us. You know, Allah sort of out of this. But, but note here, Allah is talking to the intellect. Because it tells you everything will go through this process, except those who opt out when it comes to their social institutions. Here, it's talking about the law of nature that God has put into motion, so that a plant, through its effort, cannot opt out. You, through your own efforts, cannot prevent becoming old and eventually dying. You are, you know, we are not going to be able to opt out of the physical laws of nature Although we can opt out of the social laws of nature. Most importantly is the commentary, I think, of those who argued that al-falaq, it is not just this combust combustive process of, of creation in the physical sense, but it is also the rub that allows the combustive process of understanding. Here we don't need the idea of cyclicality, but the notion that you can have understanding who allowed the miracle of understanding to come as if in the moment of break, an emission out of something else. So in their expression, you say, فَلْقْ الْقُلُوبِ لِلْأَفْهَامِ فَلْقْ الْقُلُوبِ لِلْأَفْهَامِ In other words, then, it's this moment in which you feel your heart splits asunder and you for the first time can see it. Can see it. All of you must have experienced these sort of rare points of lucidity that come upon a human being every once in a while where you struggle with something for a long time and for one moment you see it clearly and perfectly. But hopefully, I mean, the trauma of dying induces it. Hopefully human beings can self-induce sufficient trauma to see it before dying, to reach this, this point of, of lucidity and understanding before death. Because when it's death, it's too late. And by the way, this goes back again to this whole issue of that you take the power of reasoning and you direct it against yourself. Because when you do, you actually traumatize yourself. And when you traumatize yourself sufficiently, you saw you you get to several points like this point near death where the trauma the agony of knowing you're going to die results in lucidity of, of meaning or understanding you know it's a, it's not actually very that strange human beings you know they do certain things and then when they are hit by a calamity they go back and say yeah i'm so sorry you're right you know you were right all along the so it's like suddenly they have all this lucidity 
and clarity of meaning and vision. The trauma produces. Now, the whole idea of training is, is that you, instead of just waiting around for, for things, trauma to hit you, like, may, you know, may Allah forbid your parents dying, or your beloved son dying, or your beloved daughter dying, or, or you know, you, you lose your eyesight or whatever, the trauma that it produces in the city, that you self-imposed, you self-created upon yourself early enough so you can reach these points of understanding and lucidity before God, through intense trauma, permitting it to exist. By using the powers of reasoning and directing them against self-analysis. I mean, if you, le- if you learn how to probe, and then you take these awesome intellectual powers, but instead of um, applying them on on deconstructing others, you actually apply them to deconstructing yourself. Can you imagine what the result would be? I mean, the result would be devastating because you would be completely deconstructed. The important thing is to know that you have an essence, and the essence, the worth of the essence is guaranteed by God. It's not yours. You don't tread there. Because that, the worth of the essence, the value of the essence, that's God's business. So you can't say, I'm worthless, I'm a piece of garbage. That's haram. Because God said you're not a piece of garbage. But you can, you can say, I am the lowest of the law, I am so full of sin, I, I, everyone else is better than me. That all would be healthy. But when it's not healthy is when you get to the point where you say, I have no worth, I'm better off dead. Then you're treading upon God's domain. Because the essence that, that is owned by God, belongs to God, and the value of which is determined by God, not you. But here again, the, the idea which was emphasized particularly by the Sufis, it is not just Allah that allows the mechanical process of creation and recreation, the deconstruction of, of, what the, of the past and the formation of the gap and the existence of the new. But then, and note here how we started our halaqah, that this process now can be brought into your inside. So that the old is deconstructed very much like a fruit is deconstructed before the seed emerges onto the, into the ground. I mean, if you take an apple, if the seed remains in the apple, and the apple never rots, the apple is never deconstructed, the seed will never touch the soil. And you'll, there will never be anything new. But only because the apple is deconstructed and rots and is thoroughly destroyed, Will you have the seed emerge? And then the seed can produce another plant, and the plant can produce another apple, and the apple can produce another seed. Well, this is what has been emphasized. But inside the human being, you are going to take yourself and deconstruct yourself very much like an apple is deconstructed on the soil and rocks. And what emerges is something that can create a new being that transcends alam al-shahada to alam al-ghayb. The, the Sufis insisted that it is cyclical, cyclical in the sense that you never reach a point of repose. So there's better version and a better version and a better version. But they insisted that each version is better because it comes closer to understanding the right. The, I mean, the others didn't insist that it's cyclical, it's just they insisted on, on it being more informative. And that you are constantly, I'm using the word deconstructing because it helps me, but in a constantly attacking the old, the rotting, destroying it, and rejuvenating it in a new form. 
And yes, imagine, for example, someone who is 22 years old, right? And they are still young and, and so on. They go through this process, like that book that I got today from Book World, it talks about like the 40 days of isolation. And they go through this process and they emerge after much suffering into truly a good human being. How many years do they live? Let's say by the age 50, and they remain really wonderful, sterling examples. But by age 50, they haven't kept up this process. Okay? Years have passed. They haven't noticed how much wrath has seeped in. They haven't noticed that they have no longer speak the language of Al-Ghaib, but actually now only speak the language of Shahada. But they haven't noticed that. And the only time you can actually see it is when they step into a position of power, and you ask yourself, my God, what this person didn't used to be that way. This is the nature of human beings. In other words, it is this process of rejuvenation. It's like if Hassan said, and actually before him, his father, that Allah has made the ayah, made the made the, the heart of the Quran constant movement and energy, and made the heart of creation constant movement and energy, and made the heart of piety, constant movement and energy, is that you never satisfy with where you are, but you are always coming back and saying what has been corrupted, and deconstructing it, and destroying it, and rebirth from it. Okay. This is called A'udhu Rabbil Falaq. So, Rabbil Falaq, the, the, the God of that, who creates this combustive process. You may take it in its most simple form and say, the God of Falaq means prison and hell, which is fine. But I have to be honest with you, I, I, don't, I don't think that that interpretation is well-founded. I mean, it's based, basically based reports, so you know, don't, don't seem to, to have the necessary way.